You are listening to the Indie Game Development Podcast Show, sponsored by Curiosoft Kids Games and the letter E. Visit the Indie Game Development Podcast site at www.indiegamepod.com. Welcome to the Indie Game Development Podcast. How about you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Arthur Humphrey. I'm uh, the lead designer and CEO of Last Day of Work, and uh, we're based out of San Francisco, although we actually are working from Italy uh, from basically October through December of this year. Cool. How did you get into games? Well, I guess I'd have to say I'm another one of those old school gamers all the way back in the day, and... um, uh, my start was on the VIC-20. Um, I, I did a couple, uh, I wouldn't want to say clones, but a couple games that were inspired by uh, some of the, the early arcade hits. I did a version of Pango in Basic and a version of kind of a Boulder Dash kind of thing. And uh, these were far enough back that, that these games, if, if I wanted to play them now, I would have to find a tape drive to load them. Oh, wow. Um, and then from there, did you pretty much cont- continue that or put it aside and then enter the indie game scene recently? or Yeah, I would have to say the latter. Uh, I, I released those into the public domain, and who knows, maybe there's some uh, <laughs> some kind of retro site that actually has them. That would be funny. But it, it was certainly in me to make these games, and, and it was exciting, and, and it was it was easy back then in basic, where you would actually use peaks and pokes to, to light and, and delight pixels on the screen, and it was exciting. But like everyone else, I, I had to uh, kind of get back to reality and, uh, you know, finish school, finish university and whatnot. And uh, we actually made our entry into the PDA market, uh, where specifically Palm, where the barrier to entry is very low, even lower than uh, the indie game scene. Oh, okay. Um, what inspires you to do stuff for the handheld? Was it mostly the barrier of entry or was there any other inspiration? Well, aside from being inspired to, to make games in general, the, the handheld is a very uh, manageable, bite-sized platform. You, you don't need a lot of graphic assets. You're not expected to come up with a lot of audio assets. While there are a lot of challenges, for example, making a, a character with you know 8x8 eight eight pixels, um, there, there's a lot of limitations that can actually stimulate creativity. Sometimes having everything at your disposal and everything being possible is actually uh, can inhibit creativity. So there's a lot of limits that, that in a way help you to structure a game, but then the barrier to entry, you could make a game on, on Palm that could potentially sell for you know very little money. You could do everything yourself, and, and the only expense would be uh, the time you, spe- time you spent doing it. Okay. And would you say, well, how long ago did you start doing that? Uh, I started that kind of by myself in 2002, and and I would call it a hobby business because it was not my primary source of income. But it it definitely can lead you into a a really safe and and interesting path into game development because I released a card game in 2002, and it sold a few copies, which was a few more than I actually really expected. And I took that very small revenue and kind of you know, threw it into a slightly larger project. And honestly, 14 projects later, I, I had assistants, I had contractors. Um, Carla, my wife, joined me, and we started making real games for the Palm with actual budgets. 
So we stayed in the black at every stage. Uh, every project being a little bit bigger than the last, a little more successful, learning as we go. And, and it also, it stays true to the, kind of the, the advice that everyone gives people who want to start doing this, which is just do something, get something out there, because you learn so much each time. Okay. Um, when you first started out, did you, did you read about all the independent game development stuff that was happening on the internet, or was this something that was just separate? I really didn't start out um, in, the, in the indie scene, so to speak. And in 2002, you know, which is eons ago, there was really no casual space to, yeah. to speak of that was not publicly really known. There was just a few early adopters getting in there, like Reflexive and whatnot. And um, it, it, it was really not the intention to, to be an indie developer my intention was just kind of to make some games, make a few bucks, and see, okay, if I can make a game in X months and it makes X dollars and I make 20 of these, can I make a living at this? Which okay. I think it is kind of the heart of the, the indie spirit is can I make a living at this? Can I be my own boss? And I want to make games. Yeah. Were you thinking of publishing yourself on the Internet at that time or were you still thinking of going through retail? No, it would have been on the Internet for sure. And, and in fact... PDA had a more, I would argue, a more mature electronic distribution model in place back then. There were sites where oh, you, could yeah, yeah. List, you could list your games on Palm Gear or Hendango and immediately start selling. They wouldn't filter them. They would accept anything. And you would get, uh, I think back then, 75% of the revenue. Uh, oh, wow. Now it's more like 50%. And so it, it was really uh, intended just to be electronic distribution and just to get something out there and, and see if, if, if it grabbed people's attention. Okay. Uh, so you release your first game. You get some sales. What are you thinking then? Well, I'm thinking, hey, you know, the game's out there, and I sold 10 copies. I can buy a pizza. But, <laughs> but beyond that, I was thinking, well, this is cool because now the game is selling, and yeah, there's some support tickets, there's some maintenance, but this is a... Uh, a good business model in a lot of ways, and, and one of the ways is that it's a royalty-based model where you make money after the work is done based on your IP, and it doesn't necessarily take a lot of your time, at least at first. So your time is free to make more money. So it's a fundamental kind of philosophy of, uh, of running a business that your time is limited, and finding solutions to monetize your time that don't use up very much of it um, can be leveraged much more easily. Okay. Uh, what was the second game then you made? Was it still a card game or was it something else? Yeah, I started out with, with several card games and part of that is, is simply that you can reuse a lot of the code so you get to monetize your 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 framework, your efforts several times. But also, I think I, I kind of hit a niche. I was making card games that 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 were a little different than what was out there. So, I, I kind of tried to establish myself in that tiny niche within a niche, and uh, it, it was it was okay. But I really wanted to make real games, so pretty pretty soon I, I started shifting out of the card games into more game games. Okay, when you were thinking about making um, what you consider game games, were there any concerns? Because card games seem to do pretty well um, across all platforms or many of the platforms, like the PC and the handhelds. And then when you do a game game, it may have been a little more challenging. What were your thoughts? Well, game games are more intimidating because they, they're they much uh, much broader. They, again, they aren't so limited. 
you know, if you're going to do a card game, you, you have a very specific set of rules that's already designed. I've also heard that, and this is probably true, that card games have a, a slightly different, how would you say, a different curve as far as... They, they will probably never be a huge mega-hit, but they'll have a very, very, very long tail because there's always people looking for that kind of game. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when you started your game games, were you, what types of games were you starting? We started with um, a simple, simple virtual pet, and, and we moved very quickly into what is basically the core of a lot of our games, which was uh, we, we did Plant Tycoon for Palm. Uh, and, and we're working on that now for Windows. We're bringing that over. And that was our first breeding simulation. And it really is similar to Fish Tycoon, which is uh, obviously available on, on Windows and Mac. And uh, that that's really when things started to take hold. We knew what we were enjoying and what we wanted to do. We were getting the framework established and the code base established that we could kind of reuse. And so we, we stayed in that direction since then. Yeah, uh, I think the simulator stuff is pretty interesting. Uh, what what inspired you to go down that route? Well, the the games I make are are basically games that I think would be fun first and foremost. I'm I'm, I'm definitely a gamer, and success in the industry I think will come to people who who really believe in what they're doing as as in any industry. Uh, as far as simulation games. I don't know. I think it, it just it just seemed fun. It's certainly rewarding as a programmer because you often find yourself surprised at, at what emerges from your game design. You you set up the the rules and whatnot, and and when you're testing it and when you're playing it, although it, it can be very difficult to test, things can be fairly unpredictable, and and that can be entertaining as a as a developer. Okay, when you were doing the virtual pet. How did you go about then coding it, um, especially the, the gameplay aspect, the, the simulation aspect? Was that something that you had to do research on, or was it something that you knew? Um, it, it was kind of a mess. It, it was my first game game, and it, it was really it was ad hoc from beginning to end. Uh, it was coded, then tested, then fixed, then tested, then broken again. It was really a learning experience in, in developing an organized code base and, and in many other ways. So I can't say that that code would be very uh, very useful today in any capacity. It's really Frankenstein code. Okay. Well, after that game, what were you thinking? You released that. Well, then we, we did Plant Tycoon. And, okay. and each game we released beat, beat the other one in sales. And okay. uh, Plant Tycoon you... was really fun, and, and we, we enjoyed working on that. We, we took inspiration on that one from uh, from Italy. We worked again from Italy uh, during that development, and, and we took inspiration from the various botanicals and, and, and flowers and plants around us and brought them into the game. And we, we really felt like we were inspired, and that, that helped a lot. Okay. Also, at the same time, were you doing any marketing, or were you still going through the same channels that you were talking about before? We tried a few different types of marketing. We tried buying print ads. We tried Google ads. and We, we were not very good at uh, measuring the effectiveness of these ads, so we kind of never could get confidence, and, and we, we never really knew what, what kind of ads to do, so it was never our strongest point. Okay. After Plant Tycoon, what were you thinking then? Well, we, we brought that over then. Uh, we Essentially, it evolved 
figuratively and literally, and, and plants became fish, and Fish Tycoon uh, was born. And that's basically the same game uh, that you see on Windows. Uh, and it, it was kind of a natural next step for us, and, and it was really fun to make. And, and we also really felt that it's fun to have fish in your computer, in your palm, in your computer, whatever. Yeah. Well, that was the first game where you did it for the PC. Yes. Okay. Um, did you release on the Palm first or or Pocket PC? We did. I'll, I'll tell you the story of Fish Tycoon. Sure. It's been told a couple times, but basically we released it on Palm. It did well, and well for Palm. And so we said, okay, this is going to be our, our, our entry into Windows uh, because we, we feel that it it showed that it it's fun. It, it did okay. It should do okay in Windows, even though it's a more competitive space. So... At this time, we said we're going to scale up. We got an office, a brick-and-mortar office. We, we brought on staff. We actually had a payroll. We, we had people on staff. We weren't just working with contractors. Okay. And we went into full-scale development. We started this in, um, I think it was January of 2005, and we thought we'll have it to market in May. It's just a port after all. Yeah. So later that year, in November, we were still working on it. And we found, obviously, that... The, the wide open space of Windows development was was more of a hindrance than, than a, a liberating experience. And uh, we, we had other problems. The office was too expensive. People wanted to work remotely anyway. Yeah. Uh, it, it was very difficult. Uh, we had framework problems. We didn't know uh, if we should use a game engine. We were switching back and forth. We were also bringing it to E3 and pitching it to portals and, and planning the distribution. And every time we did that, we would pretty it up. You know, we'd put lipstick on that pig and, and bring it out and show it off. And, and people were nice and receptive. And then we'd have to take it back into the lab, tear it apart, remove all the temporary code that we had put in. Uh, and, and we ended up losing a lot of time doing that. Uh, come November, it was looking like, you know, we weren't going to get portal distribution because uh, we, we were having a lot of resistance. And um, we, we almost launched it as, really, with no portal support, as a direct sales title, which would have given it a lot less visibility, for sure. Okay. And in the 11th hour, uh, Big Fish picked it up. Uh, it did very well, and they, they actually then signed it exclusively. And, you know, then it propagated over the next year. Okay. Um, after that experience, what were you thinking in terms of development, in terms of the next game, stuff like that? Well, we wanted, we were pleased that it, it got on on Big Fish and eventually on all the portals. And naturally, we wanted to bring um, our, our Village Simulator over next, uh, which which was our best-selling game uh, on the handheld. And so we immediately started working on that. And and this time we were a little wiser. We we got rid of the office. We stuck with a contract team, a virtual office, that we were able to scale down in between projects. Um, and we knew it wasn't just going to be a port. We knew it was going to be like making a brand new game. Um, not only were there, there differences in, in the resolution, in the polish, in, in the look and feel, but the, the usage differences were tremendous. Uh, people were playing it at work, and then they would go home for the weekend and come back, and their village would be wiped out from starvation. So we had to change a lot of the, uh, the core of the game to accommodate these kind of office workers and people playing in different ways that we had not seen before. But we were more prepared. It went very smoothly, and and uh, it came out through Big Fish again and, and had a much stronger launch, uh, was distributed widely, quickly, and we're really happy with it. 
Okay. Can you talk about the difference and the benefits of a virtual office versus having that physical office? Yeah, virtual office is an idea that, well, it's not terribly original, but it's it's a term that, that we had picked up from a colleague. And the, the fundamental idea is that, okay, you're all working remotely, and you don't have an office, so you don't have overhead. Not only do you not have overhead, but you can deduct a lot of your home expenses now, and so can all of your collaborators and contractors. Apart from that, it it's kind of a term that implies that you're all there at the same time. Everyone pops onto their IM at the same time. There's webcams. Communication is, is what suffers when you don't work in the same room. And the concept of the virtual office is supposed to um, compensate for that a little bit. And, and you know, you, you have to have a little bit of structure. When you work remotely, you have to absolutely make a, a concerted effort to communicate. It's too easy to slip into your little into your little shell and disappear in your in your little cubby hole. So the virtual office is a philosophy where everyone is working; they're just not in the same room. You can even leave Skype running all day and just be chatting or just hearing them click at their keyboard. And it's a really effective model. It does have its limits. You can't grow beyond a certain point. I've heard it said eight, nine people. You start to lose efficiency. Communication breaks down. But uh, it, it's good in a lot of ways. Okay. You talked about using a webcam. I mean, is video a big part of this virtual office experience for you, or is it still mostly IM and Skype? It's it's really not a big deal. Um, it's it's nice to see uh, to see each other once in a while. It's it's absolutely not critical. Okay. Uh, so you finish up Virtual Villager, you release it. Now I noticed on your website you have a flash version of Fish Tycoon. And I wanted to know if uh, if you found that one of the most effective ways to promote the game, or is the downloadable demo still the most popular thing? Well, I I, I think that a downloadable demo is is what I'm interested in doing in general. We outsourced the uh, Flash version, and it it was difficult. It was really difficult to do, and it's difficult to find uh, a good partner to do that for you for a reasonable amount of money. Ultimately, for this kind of game, the Flash version is just a marketing tool. It's to get people to play it more easily, more quickly, and then you really want them to to download the, the trial version and then hopefully buy it. Uh, some of the problems that it leads to are that you'll have people playing it, and it's quite different than the downloadable game. It's really a different code base. And then they won't download the full version. They'll just go straight to buying it. And in some cases, for example, it won't run on their machine. A lot of the okay. nice nice effects of having a trial version is that you, you weed out people who are going to end up being difficult support tickets. They try it, it doesn't run, they're not going to buy it, and, and that's actually, I mean, assuming you have as much compatibility as you can get, that's actually a good thing. It keeps support low. But I'm told that the Flash versions are important, that they upsell very well, and we're, we're constantly encouraged to make Flash versions. So we have a Flash version of uh, Virtual Villagers that will be ready in about a week. Okay. Now, you were talking briefly about usage behavior and how some people are actually playing it at work and then they're going home to play it or they're just waiting till the next day to Yeah, they're actually waiting to the next day. And okay. usage is an interesting thing. Look at look at what um Introversion did with Defcon. They have an office mode where the game lasts 8 hours. There's a boss key where you can make the game disappear, and then it'll sit in your system tray and give you small notifications of important game events. I mean, it is tailored 
for a very specific usage, this particular game mode is at least. I think that's a really interesting approach. I mean, you have to think about who's using it. Everyone's concerned about the demographic, but you also have to think about how they're using it. Okay. And for you, like, have you been doing studies then on how people are using it, when people are using it? No, nothing formal. We just we just get a little bit of feedback from our testers, from our our, our community, and we uh, we we try to infer from that. But we're we're really guessing. Okay. And speaking of community, it does seem like you have a huge community following um, for your virtual villager game, and and the other games too. And how does how important is community for your games? I think that. Everyone would agree it's it's very important, and it's important in lots of ways. Uh, they're a huge creative resource. They flood us with brilliant ideas and creative content. I mean, they they write stories and poems about the game that are oh yeah are wonderful. Uh, aside from that, they're they're a huge group of customers. They're a huge viral marketing uh, power. Community is obviously very important. We're we're very grateful that that we have we've touched a nerve with these games that. People will actually come and, and want to chat about them and and uh, and contribute to the uh, to the sequels and things like this. Okay. Did you do anything specifically to grow the community, or was it more of a people bought it and then they joined the community kind of thing? Well, we had to put up forums, okay. um, <laughs> so we did something, and and we tried to make them very nice, and and we we were careful which forums we put up. We tried to make them look look very attractive, make them comfortable, make them cozy, simple, uh, stick to the point, um, rated G. Uh, you know, we we do uh, moderate them carefully, and you know, we don't just leave it to its own. We 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 do give it some effort and and some attention. We certainly have contests and. And we make sure that people that show up uh, at our forums and at our community sites get sneak peeks and get kind of premieres and and get uh, shortlisted onto the beta tests and things like this. Okay. So after Virtual Villager, what were you thinking? Well, we we knew that we would like to work on a follow-up to the game because the story doesn't really finish. It's begging for more. And... So we, we just wanted to wait and see if it was going to do well enough to justify continuing work on it. We also finally had a framework that we felt was stable, solid. We had the code up to a pretty high level where we could get progress really rapidly. All of the, let's say, casual games, best practices were implemented, like save slots and loading screens and areas for branding. and These kind of mundane, boring things were done, and we just kind of wanted to jump right back in and and make a follow-up. So that's what we're doing. We're working on the second chapter of Virtual Villagers now. Okay. And what's what's going to be different in this version compared to the last one? Well, we it's you know we're making a sequel, and y you look in cinema, a lot of sequels flop. So I think the lesson there is, as soon as you think you know what's fun about your game, you probably are wrong. So we're we're trying not to base the sequel on on a set of things that we feel made the first one fun. We don't know. Maybe the, the first step is acknowledging that you don't know. So what we're doing is we're not changing the core. We're creating new content. We're okay. advancing the story, which we're really excited about. And since it's kind of a sandbox game and people play how they want, we're just adding more toys into the sandbox. Nothing okay. that is, is required 
tired of the player, but more like lots more things to do that they can do or not to. Okay, great. Um, in your whole game development experience, uh, is there anything that you wish you would have known before you started? Well, yeah, there, there's too many things to list, probably. Okay, uh, what about the top three? <laughs> top three. I, I would have loved to have had had months of experience with each framework, each game engine, each piece of middleware, so that I wouldn't have to put things in, find out that they had limitations, and then swap them out for something else. This wastes huge amounts of time. I would have loved to have had uh, implemented a virtual office from the get-go. And... Uh, I mean, those those are definitely the, the big two, I would say. Those are, are two things, as a game developer, that have cost us a lot of time and pain. Okay. And in terms of game design skills and game design um, development, is there anything that you specifically do to make sure that you're on top of making your simulations effective, productive, stuff like that? Well, there's... There's a lot of schools of thought about game design, obviously, and and I've learned a huge amount from attending uh, GDC in in the Bay Area. And one of the things that I really believe is true is that, for the most part, game design is is done by the seat of your pants. And you know, the more games you play, the more familiar are familiar you are with with things that work things that don't work, and then occasionally you get stuck, you lose traction, and then you start to think, okay, then you think about tools, game design, techniques, changing game mechanics in order to change dynamics, that kind of thing. So I try to take that approach and just make the game from the seat of my pants how I want it to be, and when I get stuck, when something's not working, then I look at at the mechanics, then I break it down. I try not to do that too much. Okay. And speaking of games that you consider uh, fun, what are your favorite indie games or just favorite games in general? Well, let's see. I I was really struck. When I first started really paying attention to the IGF, I was really struck with Gish. Okay. I was I was struck with uh, Wick, Fable of Souls. I thought these games were, these were, were the future of, of gaming. I, I felt like the mainstream market was really... A little bit stagnant, and these games were so original and innovative. I was, I was really excited. Ragdoll Kung Fu got me really excited. Um, lately, I've been playing The Ship, which I think is is clever in a lot of ways. I think it's the only game that you can get killed while you're sitting on the crapper by someone coming in with a frying pan. I mean, it's it's unlike anything I've played. So, okay, I, I would go with those. Where do you see? You know, you're talking about stagnation versus innovation. Where do you see uh, the future of games going? I think that you can see a pattern. If you look at what happened to mainstream over the last, I don't know, 10 years, you saw that there was innovation. People were trying crazy stuff. And and I think it's agreed that what happened was budgets went up. These companies competed by increasing production values, increasing the amount of content, and the games started getting very expensive to create. Once a game is that expensive it's no longer feasible to to try something really innovative because you absolutely don't know if it will sell. So I think we're starting to see this in the indie game space now. What's happening is that people are realizing with the emergence of these electronic distribution models that now you can actually make money. As indie blurs the line with casual and whatnot, you you can make some money from these games. So the competition is heating up and they're competing with production values. 
games that used to cost $50,000 are costing up to a quarter million and more now. Once you get to that price point, you know, you can't invest a quarter million dollars in a game that you have absolutely no idea how it's going to do. So the tendency is to take a mechanic that's proven, make some changes, distinguish your game in some way, and do that. And these, these are steps away from innovation. So this seems to be a pattern that's repeating itself in the indie space that we've already seen in the mainstream space. So what's interesting about your model is that you're going with the casual games portal as compared to necessarily trying to promote the games yourself. How does how's that working out for you? And do you have any concerns or do you see just pure benefits from it? There is this debate between using the portals who keep a large portion of the revenue or just selling direct, where you maybe sell a lot fewer titles, but you keep more of the money. And I think that for us, the portal solution is a lot better. We, we are not masters of marketing. We know this. In fact, we really feel that the one thing we enjoy and that we're best at is making the games. So we're, I think, a classic example of someone that needs a publisher. We, uh, we, we get our games up on the portals. They get pushed out, and we get to keep working on game designs. In the meantime, aside from selling more copies and keeping less of the money, your brand also gets a lot more recognition. People know your game a lot more. So all things being equal, if you're going to sell, you know, a 1,000 copies at $10 or, you know, 100 copies at $100, you're going to make the same amount of money, but it might be better to sell the 1,000 copies because it's going to help you sell your next game. You're going to get some visibility. Okay. And what about considering retail versus electronic distribution? Is retail something that you consider trying to get into, or do you think that electronic distribution is the way to go? I think, well, we're, we're in retail as of like a few weeks ago. Uh, Fish Tycoon is, uh, is in uh, GameStop and EB Games and Best Buy, and Virtual Villagers will be uh, by, by the holidays. Uh, but I, I perceive from kind of the indie casual space point of view, retail is kind of you know, the last almost like the last portal. Like if your game does well, you, you get it everywhere and then you also get it into retail. And and you know, the casual retail space is not the same. It's you're not gonna be up on the top shelf with uh, Call of Duty three. You're gonna be in the family area or in the casual area or in the discount area. So it's it's a little bit different. But I think it is a, a valid uh, channel that you, you can't ignore. Okay. Now let's switch into uh, game design. Uh, you've got some, compared to other indie games, um, to, to the traditional match three, you've got what I believe is like pretty innovative. And can you walk me through the design process of these games and what you do to make these simulations? Sure. Basically, I, I would love to tell you that we, we sit down, we do a pen and paper prototype, we, uh, we iterate through that, then we, uh, we complete a, a design document, um, we staff up, we schedule the, uh, the project and all the, the team members' dependencies, and then we implement the game and, and put it to market. But it's nothing like that for us. We're, we're a little more chaotic here. What tends to happen is we have a game idea, and we do a technical prototype of the most challenging things graphically or, or technically, and we see if it works. Always promising ourselves we're going to go back, tear it down, and start clean. But what happens is we, we get this prototype going, we keep adding features onto it, and suddenly it's, it's the core of the game. We have kind of a Frankenstein game core as the prototype turns into the actual game. I, I don't know how it happens, but it happens again and again. 
at that point, we, we start to scramble and get the design document in order, which obviously uh, evolves throughout the whole project. Uh, another important part of this is that I'm a little bit more of a core gamer, and so my designs get bounced off of Carla, who's uh, who's my partner in the business here, and she is is also a talented game designer from the years of experience uh, working with me, but she's absolutely not a core player. So she is kind of it's kind of a yin yang thing. She uh, tempers my designs and keeps them down to earth and accessible. Okay, you were talking about technical prototypes. Are you also does that also include gameplay prototypes then, or is it still mostly you're more concerned about the technical aspects of implementing this game? Initially, we do try to try to get the gameplay prototypes up and running ASAP. Uh, you, you never know how your game is going to to work out until you play it. Obviously, uh, the technical prototypes are are things that could stop us if we can't do it correctly, and we test those first. Uh, those are the most likely and costly thing that could redline uh, red light the game. After after we're past that, we try to get it into alpha as quickly as possible so we can have regular play sessions as we're developing the game. Okay, when you go from this prototyping, so you would say that your development model is pretty much uh, prototype heavy. It's like prototype design. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's actually kind of a, a becoming a popular approach, but ours is a little more haphazard because what really should be done, I think, from what I've been told, is is that you prototype, but but you don't build your game around these wacky prototypes. The prototypes should be done quickly, and and not necessarily become part of the the code base, but we, we don't do that. We we end up converting them into into part of the game uh, if they work, and they usually do. Okay. Now, Will Wright's been reported uh, to like read up on previous research of systems thinking and like systems algorithms and stuff like that. Is that something that you have to do for your simulation code? It can be helpful. Um, we've done that for sure. Uh, and you know, if if you're gonna if you're gonna have Simulation-like aspects in your game, it, it can be helpful to put a, a kind of a, an abstract structure around them like that before you try to code them. But ultimately, anything that's leaning towards the simulation is going to have some degree of emergency, emergent behavior, and when you play it, it's going to surprise you, and it's going to need a lot of tuning. And yeah, these, these go ahead, go ahead. These games need a tremendous amount of tuning. It makes for a very crazy beta phase where the game changes a lot still. Yeah, let's talk about this concept of emergence. Uh, when you're prototyping and stuff, what are you looking for? And you know, you're talking about how you have these crazy surprises. When you start experiencing more and more of these crazy surprises, does that mean your game is getting closer to being done? Or how does that all work? Well, what happens is we, we in, in Virtual Villagers, we, we give them their, their, their behaviors and we give them their kind of their AI, let's call it their their mind, and then we we let them loose. And if you have the right amount of emergence, the game can get additional replayability because the game can be unpredictable and it can seem kind of realistic and fun. But it's it's a fine line. If you cross that line, it can start to look stupid. It can start to uh, you know it can start to to spiral out of control where where the emergence starts to make them do ridiculous things. So. It's it's a fine line. You want emergence, but you want to rein it in closely. Okay. Now you're talking about how you have to constantly be tweaking the game and the simulation code, even you know throughout its beta. 
can you walk me through this whole, I mean, what's the process of this? Is this something where you're just constantly playing the game and just tweaking a few variables, or how does that work? Yeah, it's basically that. Um, a play session will be everyone on the team playing the game, writing down notes. Why is he doing this? What's going on here? And then we'll refer to those notes all week during development. Uh, but certainly we're doing a lot of tweaking constantly until the last minute. It's like, why is this guy still fishing? I told him to be picking berries. You know, what, what, what's going on here? There's a lot of that going on. It's very subtle, and it's also impossible to make everyone happy because you can have someone who wants them to be, you know, mindless robots that do exactly what they're told, and other yeah. people appreciate that they have a bit of personality and they're a little bit stubborn. Okay. Um, and how do you keep on then improving your design skills? Other than just developing your games, you know, and keeping and doing other games, uh, your genre is a little different, and I don't know if there's any other type of research that you have to do to make sure that you're on top of this, making the simulation fun. Oh, there's extensive research that I have to do, competitive research. That is, I play games constantly. And uh, I are, get these, a lot are these of... mostly simulator games, or are these just games in general? No, just everything, really everything. Okay. Uh, indie games, core games, casual games, uh, you know, even games like World of Warcraft. Know, the, the, the crack of all games is uh, it seems really far away from, from indie games but every game has something to, to offer you every game has done something perfectly with World of Warcraft for example I, I really loved their just in time tutorial you would start playing and it would pop up tutorial messages oh this is the first time the players died let's pop this up this is the first time the player has gotten an object or needs to loot let's pop up a tip and I loved that and we brought that into uh, Virtual Villagers so it tries to be unintrusive. It pops up, it tells you what's up, but it lets you play. And it, and it can pop something up much, much later in the gameplay if it's the first time you've experienced this or that element of the game. I think it's very clever. You can get these things from every game imaginable. Just little little ergonomic optimizations, little tricks. Okay. Aside from playing a ton of other games, is there any other type of research that you have to do? Well... Again, I'll say that GDC is very useful, and there's a lot of really interesting approaches that, that people will teach you at these conferences, obviously, and and they're especially useful if you get stuck, and and that's what a lot of them talk about. It's like, you know, if you're designing a game and, and you have the muse whispering in your ear and, and you're going and you have traction, great, nothing wrong, you're set. But when you get stuck, just like writer's block, then you need to have some techniques and, and some strategies to, to get get your traction back. Um, is there any specific strategy or technique that you found very useful when you're stuck in a rut? Well, that's a good question. It, it depends on the situation always, but uh, you know, one thing you can do is go work on something else, obviously. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a fan of of um, of top-down design, and and one thing that you mentioned, Will Wright, one thing he suggested for for game design was, for example, with um, the book Treasure Island, it was it was written after the map was drawn. So the, the author drew this map of the island and, and it, it gave him so many ideas and it probably also gave him limitations that, that can spur creativity. And that's, I think, a really interesting approach. Okay, so you would say that either working on something else or coming up with constraints are the two best techniques that you've found. It's funny, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? But I think constraints spur creativity. Okay, great. Um, now, you talked about going through the casual portals. Um, how much time do you spend in terms of technical development, you know, developing the game versus business? 
when we started out, we were we were working on games, design and implementation, 90% of our day. I, I think lately we're guesstimating it's a little bit less than half of our day. So this is like startling to us. And we're realizing that supporting these games in, in terms of uh, customer support, in terms of making you know 20 different branded versions of it for every different portal, in terms of uh, bug fixes, uh, special requests, flash versions, uh, it's it's really accumulating and it's it's a bit distracting. We're we're trying to have a, a renaissance here where we're actually turning down more offers and more opportunities that normally we we would never have considered turning down because they may be distracting us from from the core of what we do and, and from doing what we really enjoy, which is is creating new games. Okay, um, you're talking about technical support and some of these other support issues. Like what? What what would you say is like the top confusing thing for most uh, players? Because it is a different type of game than maybe most people are used to. Yeah, well, the technical support also, you know, can be a huge tool for fixing your game and releasing, for example, a sequel. If you get a hundred support tickets a day on on one element of your game, I mean, that's a squeaky wheel that that needs some attention, obviously. Uh, but it's it's really a, a wide variety. Um, we, I'm happy that we don't have a whole lot of hardware compatibility problems, but uh, we, we certainly get our share of confused people that don't know where they bought it and have either lost it or it's not registered or something like this because it, it is confusing. You know, They come to us, but they bought it where at Yahoo or somewhere else. And Okay. Um, do you have any last words then for someone who is thinking about starting their own indie business? Well, I think that it's been said a lot, and and uh, I'll say it again, and that's just finish a game and get it out there. And even if it sells one copy, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn a lot at, at so many different stages in the process that you simply cannot learn by reading and, and preparing yourself. Just just go and do it. Okay. I'd also say, you know, games with physics are fun. <laughs> People should make more games with physics. Okay, cool. Uh, any other last words for the indie game development community in general? Um, you know, make games with physics. That's I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay with that, and okay. I would do it too. But my math skills are are not up to it. Okay, I, there you I, have I think, it. <laughs> I think that says it all. Cool. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye.